According to Johns Hopkins University, as of July 23rd, 2020, more than 15 million people have been affected by COVID-19. In the U.S., more than 5 million people have been diagnosed, and there have been over 140,000 deaths reported. This global pandemic has forever impacted our lives and businesses. The unique challenges spurred by COVID-19 has caused many companies to pivot to a reimagined workplace, as well as seek innovative solutions to meet the changing consumer demands. However, many certified diverse businesses have long faced systemic barriers to economic inclusion and wealth generation prior to COVID-19. Now more than ever, we need corporations to focus on strengthening and diversifying their supply chain for sustained economic recovery. It starts with supporting certified small and diverse businesses. Welcome to the Diversity Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Audra Jenkins, joined by a member of my Ron Study Quality Diversity and Inclusion or Ready Crew, Floss Agri. Today, we are speaking with Regina Hayward, Senior Vice President and Head of Supplier Diversity for Wells Fargo. She has more than two decades of multi-industry global supply chain and supplier diversity strategy experience. Regina is known for developing high-impact supplier diversity programs and leading strategic supply chain initiatives in North America, Asia, Latin America, and Europe. Currently, she serves as a board member for a Disability Inn as a vice chair and the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. She provides leadership insights as a member of the Institute for Supplier Management's Ethical Standards Committee and Nominating Committees. She also serves on the Charlotte Chamber of Commerce Board of Advisors. Regina has been featured three times by Diversity Plus as one of the top 25 women in power impacting diversity. She's accredited with achieving more than $6 billion in supplier diversity spend over the past five years. Regina has received numerous awards and recognitions for her leadership in diversity, including honors from Minority Business News and Diversity, Inc. She is a summa cum laude graduate of North Carolina A&T State University, Go Aggies, and earned her Juris Doctorate from the North Carolina Central School of Law. Welcome, Regina. Thank you, Audra. I am super excited to be here and appreciate the opportunity to share on today's podcast. Really, really excited and ready to go today. Thank you, Regina, so much for joining us today. We're so ecstatic to have you to share your nuggets and insights, and we so appreciate your time. So let's jump right into the first question. Regina, undoubtedly, you are truly passionate about diversity, especially supplier diversity and advancing economic empowerment. Where do you derive your passion for this field and what fuels you to stay in the fight for economic parity in diverse and underserved communities? Well, I like to start when, you know, I'm asked that type of question with my background, my appreciation for community and passion started from a young age as I grew up in a supportive African-American community in the small but mighty town of Thomasville, Georgia. Educational values and a strong work ethic were impressed upon me by my mom and my dad, who were the first in their families to both complete college. They went to two historically black colleges. My dad, Fort Valley State University, and my mom, Alabama State University, and then the Tuskegee Institute back then. And so as they began their life together and and married and started having kids in Thomasville, they really created a home environment that was centered around family, church, community, doing the right thing on behalf of neighbors, really looking out for those in the community who were less fortunate. 
and then sharing our talents and skills and abilities in a way that really made a difference. And so those are my roots, and from those roots, as my career has taken shape, I've had an opportunity, as you you mentioned, to myself attend two historically black colleges and universities. And I tell you, on those HBCU campuses, seeing the robustness of folks from all over the country and all over the world really coming with a central focus on not only increasing their skill set, but one of the really important aspects, and you mentioned the Aggies, we have this term at A&T, North Carolina A&T, called Aggie Pride, and that really is about doing good while you're doing well. And so leaving those college experiences and really knowing that I wanted to go into the world with a mindset not only to, to create economic impact, to have a political and a civic voice within the country, but also I knew from an early, early age that in order to do well, I really did have to focus on doing good. And so I'm very thankful that I found ways of really manifesting that throughout my career. Now at Wells Fargo, after more than 20 years in corporate America, uh, having the opportunity to serve as an executive lead for supplier diversity. It's amazing when you think about where we've come as a community and as a, as a people, not even uh, 100 years past Brown versus Board of Education, to now have executive-level roles that are focused on things like procurement and evening the playing field for minority and other diverse businesses, I think is just a testament of how far we've come. But as you mentioned here in this conversation, I think we've also got to talk about where we've got to go to. But really for me, it's, it's those roots of family, the roots of community, the appreciation for education, and being well-seasoned on two HBCU campuses have led me to be the person that I am today. That is such a wonderful story, Regina. Thank you for sharing that. You are so right about that Aggie pride. I have many friends who graduated from North Carolina A&T, and the doing well while doing good really resonates. Clearly, you are a powerful, impactful leader, and the great work you're doing is, is an example of that. So thank you for all you're doing. So pivoting to question number two that I have, when I think back to December 2019, I was so hopeful for 2020, as I'm sure many of us were, and the excitement surrounding the beginnings of a new decade. No one could have imagined we were entering this phase moving from a crisis to a crisis. COVID-19 has had a tremendous impact on us, not only in the United States, but also globally as society as a whole. What are some things you're doing to ensure the health and overall well-being for yourself and your team. Yeah, I completely agree with you. These are unprecedented times that we're in. And no matter what models we had in play around 2020, the actual circumstances of this year have been above and beyond anything we could have imagined. A global pandemic that is impacting now over 5 million individuals within the United States from a case perspective the number of businesses that started the year with a robust business plan and who are now having to retool and reimagine how they can really approach their financial needs within their their entrepreneurial aspirations. And not only that, I think a lot about our school systems, the, the thousands of children across America 
whose school year was interrupted and who had to quickly pivot from in-person education into a virtual format and now have the uncertainty of whether or not they will be able to return back to their beloved educational foundations in 2020. So a year of unprecedented change, unprecedented situations. You know, when I think about the health dynamics, it's very important, I think, right now to nourish ourselves from a physical, mental, psychological, and emotional perspective. My team went virtual around mid-March of 2020, and interestingly, on a normal year, we travel about 30% of the time. That means we're in and out of airports, hotels, flying across the country, working on global scopes as well. So to have a team that has now for the past six months been working out of their homes is a very different transition experience. And so some of the things that I certainly work with my team on is preparing or allowing space for people to really talk about how they feel, having enough listening sessions that are full of empathy where you can really understand that folks who were maybe doing one job are now not only doing a full-time job, but they're also educating their children at home. They may be caring for a loved one at home. They may be now responsible for other aspects of their community that maybe they weren't responsible for before COVID-19. And so really providing that space for people to have enough room to be emotional. I encourage my team to take vacation time. I think that's very, very important now, even though we're working from home. You have to take that day or a few days just to check out. My husband and I like to fish and spend time outdoors, and so we've been spending time exploring the parks in North Carolina, finding places to walk, to bike, to hike, any way to just really get the the energy that could manifest itself as depression, could manifest itself as anxiety, could manifest itself in any number of ways. Finding ways to really to really let that out, I think, is really, really important. And then the last thing in this space is talking to others. This is a great time to reach out to your network, people who you haven't connected with in a few years and just haven't had time to, again, back to the folks who are traveling all the time who are now maybe at home and have a little more time, sharing the experience. There is such a common human experience in what we're going through right now. Everybody is taking this in in some kind of respect in a very, very similar way. And so being able to share that, whether it's through your social media network, through picking up the phone and having a call through Zoom meetings, I've been invited to more virtual parties as people are celebrating their birthdays on Zoom than I ever have when we were physically, you know, going to to celebrations. And so those types of things, the connection to a network, I think really helps us to get through those mental, psychological, and social aspects of what we're going through right now, which is really, really trying and really, really different. I don't think I've been through anything like this in my lifetime. So this is a very, very different experience from a health perspective. Very powerful, Regina. Thank you for that. I love that giving space for the time we're in. um, That's so poignant. All leaders need to give space to their teens because it's a different dynamic. I feel like I'm watching this movie play out. I keep thinking to myself, I'm going to just go get in my car, go home and get back to normal. 
But you're right. We've got to realize that this is our new normal. If we don't find a way to cope in this new normal, we can't cope when the next crisis might arise. I so appreciate what you said also about manifestation. I really believe in manifested energy and manifesting the positive. I hope that we're all bringing forth as much positive energy um, as we can while being mindful to be safe for ourselves, our loved ones, and people on the front lines every day by taking the necessary precautionary measures. So pivoting to my third question, after COVID-19, then we came to the the second crisis. There was a wave of social justice protest stemming from the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and, and countless others. In some communities, small and diverse businesses have suffered essentially a double-edged blow from both of these crises occurring simultaneously. What are some of the initiatives that you and your team at Wells Fargo are working on to stay connected and engaged with diverse suppliers during these turbulent times? Yeah, I think that connection is so critically important. And I was talking about how my team pivoted from the office environment to work from home. But there was another tremendous pivot that we did in March that I think was a a reflection of not only the passion that we have for ensuring that small and diverse businesses succeed, but also the reality, having worked in this space for a few decades, we knew what this moment could mean from the standpoint of, of the negatives if we didn't get in front of a few key areas. One thing that we did is we immediately began to outreach to our over 80 partners across the United States, organizations like the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, National Minority Supplier Development Council, the Women's Business Enterprise National Council, and we let those organizations know that Wells Fargo could provide helpful information to their constituents, information about the Paycheck Protection Program, information about grants that are available. Our Wells Fargo Foundation was very, very generous in working with us to get grants out to nonprofit organizations who were supporting small, diverse businesses. So with that, we were able to touch in a seven-week time frame over 20,000 people through intentional video, virtual, webinar, Zoom-type sessions that we held with our various partners. And when I say it was intense, Audra, there were days where my team was working 10, 12 hours because we just knew that in order for the things that we were hearing as possibilities, in order for those things not to happen, we really had to intently focus on getting capital and getting technical assistance and information out to small, diverse businesses. The other thing that I personally did is I joined in a few conference calls that were happening daily. And these were conference calls with the Hispanic business community, with the disability business community, with groups that serve as small business advocacy organizations. But that connectivity, the words you used about the connection was really important as all hands were on deck to ensure that we understood who was doing what and we could also offer synergistic support and some integrated efforts across communities. One great example, the American Indian Chamber of Commerce, we pulled together a session with that particular chamber, and very notably, they represent a large number of construction Native American-owned firms. And you think about what was happening early in COVID as people were coming out of facilities and capital projects were being put on hold, that was a big impact to to construction-type firms. 
But at the same time, you had a number of facilities that were adding personal protective equipment. If you walk into a bank branch now, you'll notice the plexiglass screens. If you go through a drive-through, most of them have been backfitted with some sort of protective covering over the drive-through window. We were also working with others in governmental agencies who were looking for big, diverse manufacturers who could retool their manufacturing lines to produce things like ventilators. And so the network and the connectivity was so super important as we got into the early days of COVID. And that's really what my team was focused on. Now that we're out of that early period, we are providing information to small businesses on what's remaining of the Paycheck Protection Program. So there's about $130 billion that's remaining under that facility. We certainly are collaborating with minority depository institutions and community development financial institutions to make sure that they're capitalized and have the, the requisite funds that they need to just consult folks on how to get to the remainder, the remainder of the $130 billion. But we're also launching a Wells Fargo-specific program called R3 that's designed to help small businesses retool, recover, and restore. And we're working with a group of about 10 national organizations on the R3 program, and it's going to be specifically designed to really help people move through these new stages of bringing their business back, from bringing workforce back to reimagining the business that they're in. There's some diverse businesses who've already pivoted, maybe a core business, they revised their business plan, and they're ready to go after new opportunities. So it's been a very, very intense time for supplier diversity. And I think what I'm most grateful of is that we stepped up to the plate. We knew early on, given that we spend $1.3 billion a year with diverse businesses, we've been a fast-growing supplier diversity strategy. We've added over $568 million since 2012. We knew that in order to weather this storm, the diverse businesses that we care so much about had to be okay. And not just those businesses that are within our supply chain, but more broadly across the community. And that's really what we've been putting our energy and our focus toward the COVID situation came upon us. That is wonderful. So now I'm going to pass it off to Floss Agri, who's going to take you through her set of questions. Floss? All right. Thanks, Audra, and thanks, Regina. Thank you, Regina, for sharing such great insights in terms of how you are playing a pivotal role in ensuring that diverse suppliers remain connected, right, and that connectivity is there. Looking back over some of the work and things that you've been quoted as saying, you've actually been quoted to listed as saying this is your favorite quote, quote actually, from Harriet Tubman, and it says, every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember, you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. My question to you is, coming out of this pandemic, what do you hope to see changed in the world? Yeah. So there's some revelations that I've been having as we've been going through the the pandemic, as well as the turmoil within the country due to the lack of racial justice, equality, and inequity in so many different systems and facets of of our society. I sincerely hope that we will take time to get to know each other better. In doing so, we have to tackle 
really serious issues like systemic racism. And we have to do it in an integrated and a coordinated fashion. As I think about the country and the numbers of diverse businesses that have been growing over the years, the fact that the population is teetering towards 50% ethnic minority as the majority, this is a time for us to really think about how do we deploy that creativity? How do we deploy innovation that's locked inside of communities that have never had an opportunity to equally participate in the economy. That is what I see as a huge, huge opportunity. And that whole part about working together, we have an opportunity to network more. And not just network, but to really be intentional about ensuring that we're helping the next great idea to move its way through startup to series funding to venture capital funding into some sort of an IPO and mainstream environment. It's happened very nicely for a majority individuals within the economy, and it can happen for diverse individuals as well. Just imagine how much innovation that would yield within the U.S. economy if all populations and all communities had the same access to, to networks, to relationships, to capital, and to opportunities. Um, from a technology perspective, we are really this year scaling some of our technology relationships with African-American technology companies. It's hugely exciting not only to watch a category which historically has been very low from a diverse spin perspective to see that, that category grow, but to also see individuals within the business kind of open their eyes to the possibilities and to the fact that the suppliers that we're using are performing very well and very competitive. And technology is so critical as we're shifting, and we have shifted over 200,000 people from our office environment into a work-from-home type of mode. That's all about technology. So the more diverse businesses that we have at scale, in the IT hardware and IT software space, there is huge opportunity. I'll just mention a few other areas that I'm working in, and I like to tackle the difficult areas, and that's why I love Harriet Tubman. I've watched her movie a few times, the new one that came out. Her tenacity, that grit, the patience of change, her perseverance around what she saw as a possibility and what she was willing to do actually putting herself on the line for it is something that resonates with me. Um, one of the new areas that I'm working in is the asset management space. In the United States, there's over $70 trillion of assets under management, but less than 1.3% is managed by minority or women-owned asset management firms. 1.3%. We literally can't go any lower than 1.3%. And the 1.3% of minority and women-owned firms in the U.S., they are top quartile performers in asset management. So when I talk about this opportunity to tap into areas that have been untapped and to really work together in new ways to take this economy and put it on overdrive, those are real opportunities. And so I think we are waking up. We are waking up to the need to work together. We can't go it alone. We can't have the GDP that we want or the job growth that we want or the sustained economic impact that we need as a country unless we until we get everybody on the playing field.
that's what I'm continuing to work for. And that is what I think inspired me so much about Harriet Tubman and continues to drive me forward. Well said. I love that, Regina. Taking the time to get to know each other better, to tap into some of that innovation, right? So opening our minds a little bit, I think that should resonate with a lot of people considering where we are. That leads me to my next question, which you've kind of answered that a little bit, number four, but under your phenomenal leadership, you helped achieve $6 billion in diverse society spend at uh, Wells Fargo over the past few years, and we're proud to support your Tier 2 spend as a human capital partner, of course. What do you see in terms of trends? in the supplier diversity space post-COVID-19 to help companies continue to evolve to that next level. So I know you mentioned yeah. innovation and the connection. Do you have anything that maybe you would like to share? First of all, thank you all for your support because this connects right back to my last answer. We have to do it together, and so I appreciate that your organization has been a part of the journey that we've been on and certainly has contributed to the $6 billion through our second tier tier program. And so, yep, let's continue to be connected there. And I like the, the words you used as far as what's the next level. When I think about how supplier diversity got started after Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 and integration in the 1970s, very early in the 70s and 80s, supplier diversity was almost attached to affirmative action that was a part of just getting representation within supply chains. And so we started in categories that uh, had large concentrations of diverse businesses like facilities management and construction and what I like to call the brick-and-mortar type trade categories. And then as we moved into the 90s and 2000s, brands really realized, hey, if we're working with the community, then the community is going to work with us. And so consumer products companies really began to invest in supplier diversity, brands like Johnson & Johnson, P&G, some of the automotive providers, Ford and General Motors. And they started to integrate their supply chain from the standpoint of business value and customer retention and customer capture. So where are we now? In the 2020 you know, timeframe, we are now in a knowledge economy. And what that means is that we're looking to add capabilities around digital and mobile. We're looking to increase our innovation, to be disruptive, to gain more market share. And so there are huge opportunities and spaces that I like to call professional services, not necessarily building a brick and mortar or a tangible thing, but really looking at the intangibles, right? And so when I look inside of supply chains, those are places where it's ripe for more minority and women-owned business participation. And I think that's what the next 20 years is going to look like. It's going to look like growing and scaling the next large consulting firm that is owned 51% by a minority or a woman or someone from a diverse population. It's going to look like co-developed agreements where technologies are being partnered maybe by a large corporation and a smaller organization. I think we are certainly in a robust time for startup organizations where folks who are in the investment management space are really looking to, to put dollars into getting firms going and getting them growing so that they can become the next IPO and the next publicly traded company from the standpoint of bringing more companies to the market. I also think that there's a lot of receptivity to 
being able to leverage mobile technology for delivery, the reality that we all have an iPhone or for some of us, multiple iPhones, multiple types of devices, and that's just the way people like to transact. We definitely see it in banking and finance where millennials and others in younger generations may not necessarily prefer a branch experience to walk into a retail organization. They would prefer to have things done on their mobile device and then have a product or a service delivered to them just in time at the place that they prefer. And so that's really pushing us all to really reimagine some traditional ways of doing business in a more mobile and digital fashion. So it's super exciting in supplier diversity. We are going through a transformation cycle. I'm working right now very, very heavily with my team on what it means for us as we move through. But the reality is that our supply chains are changing because our customer preferences are changing, and that means opportunity, means a lot of opportunity. Thank you for that. In terms of opportunity, speaking on that note, so the government created, as you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, supporting small businesses hit hard by COVID-19. Unfortunately, there are a lot of small and diverse businesses that have been excluded in that first round of funding. There have been celebrities that have actually stepped up to support small businesses. But for those in our audience, do you have any thoughts around what you could particularly maybe recommend for our diverse-owned businesses seeking assistance during this time? Yeah. So a few things that I would recommend, and certainly, as I mentioned earlier, there, there are still funds available through the Paycheck Protection Program, over $130 billion of funds are still available. I would recommend that you get to know your community development financial institutions, CDFIs, those local organizations within your community that are still providing Paycheck Protection loans. I also think minority depository institutions are a great place to have a conversation if you can locate an MDI in your area. Certainly large banks like Wells Fargo, we certainly do appreciate and are continuing to respond to the needs of our customers. So that's another direction that you can go in. And so what I'm doing is really painting a picture of if you're in need of access to capital and you want to tap into the Paycheck Protection Program, consider your local community lenders, minority depository institutions, as well as the large banks. Because the way the SBA's network works is we're kind of all pulled into into the network, and there are many different institutions, whether it's a traditional bank or a non-traditional financial type organization, who can, can meet your needs. And so I think it's really critical to go in and have that conversation or to make contact. I think it's also really wise to consider tapping into local business advocacy and business development organizations. I mentioned that Wells Fargo is launching its R3 program, Retool, Recover, and Restore, through a network of organizations across the country, some in Georgia, some in the the Carolinas, over in California, uh, pretty much in Wells Fargo's operational footprint areas. And so there's an opportunity there to get pulled into these types of programs from a technical assistance standpoint. And I mentioned technical assistance because what I'm learning in reading data and information around how the Paycheck Protection Program has performed is that a number of 
small minority-owned businesses just didn't have the technical assistance that they needed in order to process the paperwork or to understand the requirements of actually submitting a request for PPP. And so with that understanding, there are a number of nonprofit organizations and local organizations who are now providing technical assistance. And then the last thing that I would really focus on are the number of substantial dollar commitments that organizations have made post the George Floyd killing up in Minnesota. From the standpoint of companies really now providing funds to support diverse businesses, really understanding the need for access capital from a grant perspective, I would follow up on some of the big announcements that are being made. Now, Wells Fargo recently announced a commitment to donate all of our paycheck protection fees up to $400 million to nonprofits across the country to provide access to capital, technical assistance and support, and long-term resiliency programs to small businesses with an emphasis on minority-owned businesses. And so when I think about that, we launched the program with an initial $28 million aimed at supporting Black and African-American-owned businesses, and uh, we are certainly providing capital through that investment to community development financial institutions. So really think about, you know, at this time, maybe taking a step back, deciding what financial resources are in your community, in your area, picking up the phone, having a conversation with those organizations, determining which you feel, you know, meets your need, and then leveraging technical assistance that may be available to nonprofits in your area to help walk you through the process of applying for PPP. Thanks. You know, I have to say, Regina, you're really inspirational. You're sharing a lot of great tidbits, and it's exciting to hear in detail all the great things that Wells Fargo is doing. So happy to be a part of that as a partner. My last question before passing this back to Audra is just you working in this space, steering the helm of a lot of these efforts that you talked about. Do you feel like ever at a point you know, where you are feeling that sense of fatigue that some diversity professionals feel? And if so, do you have any advice to provide to them to combat some of that diversity fatigue that sometimes uh, leaders face that are engaged at the level that you are right now today? Ooh, I tell you what, now, <laughs> I am so glad you asked me that question because I tell you what. <laughs> I think I've been waiting for years to answer this question. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, this is certainly a challenging yet very fulfilling space to be in. Diversity professionals have high highs, and I think at times we have very low lows because it's a constant process of advocacy, influence, execution, and then checking back to make sure that things are in control. And here's what I've learned over my two-decade career. There's a cycle in diversity. You don't just set a diversity strategy or put a program in place and then you're done with it. No, that cycle is going to change as generations are changing, as business opportunities are changing. We just had the long conversation about technology and innovation. You know, whatever those macro and micro forces are that just operate to move 
mankind for it in general. They are certainly apparent in diversity. And so, you know, when I think about the recent George Floyd situation, one of the things that began to happen for me is I started getting phone calls from folks across the nation, some in my business, some in competitors' businesses, some folks just in my network, and people wanted to talk about the moment. They wanted to talk about how they felt. Some folks told me, you know what, I went through this in the 70s, right? People who had been in corporate America for a while and maybe now they're, you know, consulting and doing other things. But everybody wanted to share the context of here's where we are right now. And the reality that, you know what, everybody was a little bit right in my perspective, then that was super, super interesting. But what I felt inside of myself was a jolt of energy around the work that I'm doing that I haven't felt in a while. And that energy told me to get up, get back on the front line, to really think about what this moment, what this time could mean for my team, for the businesses that we work with, more broadly, what this moment would mean in diversity and inclusion. And I just decided, you know what? I'm going to be tired later <laughs> because <laughs> what I want to do right now is I want to take as much ground as I possibly can take in diversity and inclusion because I just haven't experienced another moment like the moment that we're in, quite like the moment that we're in. So fatigue is for real. Some of the things that I think, you know, I try to do when I do get to a point of, of exhaustion is I really try to, to pull back. As I mentioned, I love the outdoors, whether it's hiking or fishing or just taking a little bit of a staycation, picking up a great book and, and reading and meditating. And certainly for me, praying is a big part of that as well. And then just not being ashamed of admitting that I'm tired. <laughs> you know, not looking at that and, and believing that there's anything wrong with saying I, I need a little bit of a rest. But when I do rest and when I do kind of build myself back up, I find so many reasons to step back into the arena and to take another swing. And so right now I'm pretty, I'm pretty energized. And for anybody who is feeling a bit fatigued, you know, take your break, do something you enjoy doing. But now is a wonderful time to be on the battlefield in diversity and inclusion. And I don't think we'll ever forget the moment that we're in and all of the folks who worked with us, right, and really decided that they wanted to be a part of this journey of significant change in the United States and around the world. Wow. I think, you know, I'm excited and happy to hear you say that. So capitalizing on the moment or the opportunity that we have now, because I can certainly see that in our space and agree with that. I can also agree with and relate to actually, Regina, what you shared in terms of that balance, right? So in terms of combating fatigue, now more than ever, people are calling on diversity practitioners front and center, but then you're also saying, okay, while we want to make sure that we're there and this is an exciting time and we're a part of it, what you're saying to our listeners is make sure that you're taking time for you, which can sometimes be, be hard for us. Next, I will pass it on to Audra, who will take us out in her in the last few questions. Thanks, Regina. It was great talking to you. Thank you. 
Well, Regina, I have to say, I knew this would be a powerful podcast with you. Thank you for that. I appreciate that sage advice and wisdom. I love what you said about warriors on the battlefield needing rest and also the just the need to pour into ourselves during this time more than ever. So switching gears to our next question, you know, we've seen more diversity inclusion jobs pop up and because of these protests and societal employee outcries for change than I've seen in the last 10 years. So Regina, for someone who's new to the DNI field and they're interested in learning more about supplier diversity, what is a good starting point to help them gain more knowledge and grow their career? Absolutely. And and I can take this from the perspective of many, many years ago when I was new to DNI, uh, my background is economics and law. And so I started in corporate America, not in a diversity role, but in a business role, negotiating deals and doing securitizations. And I was about maybe 10 years in when a CEO at a company that I worked for asked me to look into starting supplier diversity because it was critical to one of our major customer relationships. And what I did, and this is what I would advise folks to do, I went on a listening tour. I spent about two months talking to our key customers, talking to experts in the field, listening to folks who had deep experience in diversity and inclusion, and just capturing all of those intricate best practices, the lessons learned, the here's what worked and here's what didn't. And it was amazing to me how many seasoned diversity and inclusion professionals are just waiting to impart their knowledge and their wisdom onto other people. And so I was pleasantly surprised. I said, you know what? I'm going to enjoy being in this field because people are so open to sharing. A lot of what we do in corporate America is about confidentiality, and you got to hold on to it, and you can't share it with others. But I didn't find that in DNR. If someone has found something that's worked in their organization, whether it's an ERG or a session with executives or a way of scorecarding that really resonates across the enterprise or, in my space, a way of bringing in diverse suppliers and untapped categories, folks were willing to share that. But I think the other thing that I would suggest people to do, once you kind of do your insight gathering and you begin building a network of folks who can support you and really share with you, the second thing that I would do is I would really set realistic expectations. And this goes back to that notion that diversity is cyclical, business is cyclical, things are going to change. And so understanding how to bring diversity into an organization in an effective and efficient way, I think is really, really important. And I kind of break this down into, you know, effective project management or process management, but understanding what you do in year one, year two, year three, year four. When do you need to come back and reassess all of it and do another continuous improvement loop? I think is really, really important. So not necessarily coming at it with the mindset that it all has to get done immediately. Pace yourself. Understand your organization's culture. Understand the leadership within your organization. And then give yourself a runway to make change that is reasonable and is rational. And be okay. Be okay to go back and continue to tweak things on the margins as you see changes need to be made. The final thing I'll say, and I said there were two, but I just added another one, celebrate success all along your DNI journey. 
One of the things we do annually is we have supplier diversity recognitions. We just finished a cycle of recognitions. We recognize about 100 people across Wells Fargo. And I can tell you one thing. The day I sent those notes out to people, letting them know you're a supplier diversity champion, you are a rising star, here's what you did to support procurement. You increased diverse asset managers year over year by 21%. I was getting back notes from people saying that it made their day. They were so excited. And not only did I copy the person, but also their direct manager so that it could be a part of their performance management and that gets them to, you know, incentives and things of that sort. But people need to hear that they're doing it the right way and that they're doing the right thing and that somebody noticed that effort. And so for me, insight, really, really critical, being strategic about what the plan is and then being very reasonable about that plan over time. But then intentionally recognizing folks and calling it out is what keeps people attached. And so those are the three points that I would give. And certainly if anyone needs to to chat with somebody, I'm kind of at that point where I'm open to have conversations and to share uh, other nuggets of wisdom. So don't hesitate to reach out if I can be helpful. Excellent advice, Regina. So one last question for you. You've had such a wealth of experience, many impressive accomplishments. What do you want your legacy to be that you're remembered for the most? So, you know, I, I think for me, legacy is about impact. And I, I haven't taken time to aggregate over the years all of the, the points of impact. But I do think the spend with diverse businesses, $6 billion in five years, you know, to continue to just add those numbers in to be able to see that impact over a body of, of work, over a career, is really important to me. I'm also very passionate about education. Now, this gets all the way back to the first question and my roots in Thomasville, Georgia. Uh, one of the things that I was able to do at Wells Fargo was to establish HBCU, Historically Black College and University Scholarships. And so over the past four years, we've provided out of the supply chain management organization over $240,000 to support students at HBCUs who are in the supply chain management profession through direct scholarships. And we're doing that with Florida A&M, North Carolina A&T, Tennessee State University, Clark Atlanta University. And I think that's so critical because education is such an enabler to success. And you can kind of think about that and say, well, well, that's really adjacent to supplier diversity. It is, but I do understand from a legacy perspective that I wouldn't be sitting in an executive role had it not been for the educational experiences. And so really to be able to kind of pull that along, I think is key. And then lastly for me, I truly want to leave the corporate environment better than I found it. Uh, I came into corporate America in the early 90s, and there were some pretty alarming statistics at that time. I was in the 1% of minority female attorneys in the country. In the supply chain management profession, probably another 1% of African-American women in supply chain. And now as a supply chain executive, I'm sure I'm probably still in the 1%. And so I've gone through my career, and a lot of African-American and minority executives have this experience. I've kind of gone through being the only one. As I worked in global assignments in Asia and Latin America and Europe and Brazil, those were times when I knew that, hey, I'm, I'm the only one here, but what I hope that I'm doing is laying a, a path for folks to come behind me so that it's just, you know, it's just normal for an African-American woman from Thomasville, Georgia, to 
work over in Shenzhen, China. That shouldn't be something that is so incredible that, that folks need to see your passport to believe it. It should just be this is just how it is. And so that's the last thing for me. Legacy really is about leaving it better than I found it. And I think, again, we have a significant opportunity for those of us who are in executive leadership roles to really look back and make sure that that path is a bit clearer for others than maybe it even was for us. Outstanding. Well, thank you, Regina, for sharing your insights. It was such a wonderful gift having you on the podcast. You shared such mind-blowing nuggets of wisdom. Thank you, Floss, from my Ready Crew, for another remarkable conversation. Also, I want to give a big thank you to our global listeners in over 44 countries. We so appreciate your support. Remember that when we celebrate diversity and inclusion, we celebrate humanity. Be sure to spread the word by using hashtag celebrate humanity and tag our hashtag diversity deep dive podcast. Real diversity happens when everyone is actively engaged in working together for a positive change. Let's keep the conversation going. Please download more episodes of the Diversity Deep Dive podcast. Until next time, seek out ways to make a positive difference in your community or organization. Thank you. Thank you.